and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So we're back from our half-term break and I know Rishi Sunak disrupted your travel plans with his unfortunately timed budget, Sarah, so I imagine it was a staycation, if anything, that you went on last week. Yes, yes. I mean, of all the people I worried might wreck my half-term holiday plans, it turned out to be the Chancellor. Who knew? Yeah, the most exciting thing we managed was we went pumpkin picking in the world's muddiest field, which was, well, was a mixed joy. But I mean, everyone you speak to is in the same boat. So we're all a little bit desperate for a proper holiday now. Yes, a holiday is definitely top of the list at the moment. But at every turn, plans do appear to be thwarted. If it wasn't the pretty onerous testing regime over the summer, then it's the surge of Covid cases that's led to cancelled holidays and holiday homes being put back on the listing sites after a last minute dropout. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today, the much hoped for recovery in the travel industry in an episode we're calling Are We There Yet? We'll be talking to Brian Young from G Adventures, who's going to be talking about what it's like trying to run a travel business throughout all this uncertainty. So are you back from anywhere glamorous, Brian? I'd like to say that I've been somewhere glamorous, but um, I've managed to get away for three days to Corfu in the last 20 months for a long overdue friend's birthday. But that's about as far as I've managed to get in that 20 month period. Okay, Brian, really excited to hear about Corfu and some other exciting destinations after the long days of lockdown. Uh, Much more from you coming up. We're also going to hear from our senior equity analyst, Sophie Lund-Yates. We'll be reading what the temperature is like for some of the most traded shares among our clients, like British Airways owner IAG. Hi, Susanna. Yes, looking forward to looking more closely at some of the travel stocks. It is definitely not a one-size-fits-all recovery here. And when we return from our deep dive into the travel business, we're going to look a little closer to home and focus on the prospects for the UK, especially after all those budget day announcements. So our head of investment research, Emma Wall, will be having a chat to HL Select fund manager, Steve Clayton. But first, let's fasten our seatbelts for a look at the travel industry. Because the past 18 months has been a rough ride, hasn't it? It certainly has, and hopes that a smooth recovery would be underway for the sector haven't quite yet materialised. So if you look at passenger numbers in July, there were just under 1.5 million air passengers arriving in the UK. And although it's higher than a year earlier, it's only around an eighth of the number of people arriving in UK airports in July 2019, before the pandemic. There is, though, a lot more optimism than this time last year when airline after airline was rocked by extreme turbulence before those vaccine breakthroughs provided a real glimmer of hope, of course. Yeah, and there's been some good news more recently, too. So the end of the horrible traffic light system was a huge relief for airlines and travellers last month. So rather than having the red, amber and green, which had been really difficult to work with, it just sort of split things up into the red and green list, which has been a real change. If you look at the confusion that it involved, the ONS asked returning holidaymakers how easy they found it to find out any information about overseas travel while they were away. They asked people when they come back in the airports. And in August, almost four in five people said it was either difficult or really difficult to find out what was going on. So the ONS stopped short of actually blaming this traffic light system for all the confusion. But they did say that all the traffic light changes over the summer had to be kept in mind when you consider these figures. Yes, the end of the traffic light system has been widely welcomed, inevitably, because of all this. There was also the change to the expensive testing regime, which had added too much to the price of travel. I mean, the cost of some of those PCR tests really added up, especially for families. And now only cheaper antigen tests are required for people returning on day two. Certainly cuts the cost of a holiday. But I can sense this is going to be quite a significant part. 
It is because there is another potential spanner in the works, I'm afraid, particularly for travellers with children, because of the way our vaccine rollout has progressed. Inoculation of teenagers has been slow, while some EU countries began vaccinating teens back in the summer. Yeah, and from personal experience, I know it's not been rolled out everywhere at all. So in my local area, there are very few signs of vaccinations for teenagers coming around the corner. And even where teens have had the jab, government policy is only to offer teenagers one jab for now, with the date for their second to be confirmed later. Now, this really does make a difference because other countries like France, Austria, Italy and Switzerland have made two vaccinations for teenagers a requirement to get a Covid pass. And that's essential that they have this before they can go into ski lifts, swimming pools or even bars or restaurants. If they aren't, and they won't be in the UK for the foreseeable future, it seems, they'll have to keep taking tests every few days if they do want to do pretty much anything other than staying in their hotel rooms, although actually quite a few teenagers would probably prefer that anyway, even though their parents wouldn't. But meanwhile, 12 to 15-year-olds also won't be allowed into countries like Canada without quarantining if they haven't been double vaccinated, even if their parents have had two jabs. It is really complicated, isn't it? I mean, travelling with teenagers is, is going to be difficult even after these vaccinations. Let's face it, doing anything with teenagers is always really stressful. But even solo travel means getting to grips with the specific rules for each country. So you've got to get the right tests and the right forms. And there's a real risk you could end up missing flights or, or not even being allowed to travel at all. So it really adds to the stress and the time it takes to plan a holiday, which is always a nightmare. So given the faff of it all, there is another risk that people just won't bother. We might miss another summer of international travel. So it's a headache for travellers, but it's probably a real migraine for tour operators as well, who are trying to work out the new rules of engagement. Well, let's bring in Brian Young now, who's a managing director of G Adventures, a tour company. So Brian, just how have you managed to survive during the pandemic? I imagine bookings really did plummet like a stone. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, roller coaster, I would say, over the last 20 months. From the very start of the pandemic, obviously, we're a global organisation, travellers on all seven continents. So we could see very quickly that the pandemic was here for a longer period than I think initially everyone thought. So we had, at the very start of it, repatriation of all of our customers as we could see borders closing in different destinations, a case of race against time to get people back. Then the second part to that is to understand, OK, how long is this pandemic going to last for and what are the things that we need to do? And we will get travelling when the world opens up. When there was a lifting of restrictions, would you say you got an uplift in bookings or were people still hesitant? because of the sand shifting all the times in terms of quarantine rules and testing requirements? We have seen a shift in the bookings, most definitely, and more so, actually, as lots of those destinations came off of the red list. You know, we had 54 destinations on a red list that came down to seven, which is now down to zero. Customers can now travel further afield. Certainly the testing regime that's been required from a PCR test and such like, those changes have made a big difference, and that's shifted consumer sentiment so there's no doubt beforehand lots of confusion from a consumer's perspective but as that started to become clearer and the less requirement of certain testing and such lights there's definitely consumer confidence is coming back and during the process has it caused a lot more complexity for you and trying to sort of get everyone together and, and get them all moving it has. The customer just wants more information, more hand holding now. It's not just about okay 
The government in the UK say these are the requirements, but there's obviously the border requirements of going into a different destination. What we found is our call centres, you know, gone up the amount of time people are on a call because they're trying to get more information to understand exactly what's required to be able to travel to a destination. So we need to now understand everything across the spectrum of destinations. From that perspective, it's quite complex, but certainly what we've seen is a huge increase in call volume and booking. So things are on the up. And so when the red list is reduced to zero, does that make life a lot easier in terms of your planning as well? It does, yeah, because it obviously therefore opens up more destinations. We've been very lucky because we're a global company. We've actually operated trips throughout the whole of the pandemic. And what we've seen is as North America has been able to travel, we've been able to open up destinations. And in the UK, one of the things that we were clear about is if there's a traffic light system, then where do we think the first places that are going to open up for UK travellers? And for us, we knew Europe was going to be a big part of that before long haul. And we knew customers wanted to travel closer to home coming out of the pandemic. So we actually created a suite of new trips in our DNA. We're obviously an adventure travel company. So active hiking, trekking tours are important to us. So we built out a suite of tours into places that you probably wouldn't know us for, like Ibiza, Corfu, Crete, Tenerife, etc. And then as we've seen places open and we've been able to operate globally, we actually operated over a thousand trips in this period. So we're slowly but surely coming back up as confidence is there to travel and the restrictions are coming down. Do you think the travel bug that we have has changed dramatically and for the long term because of COVID? You mentioned a switch in destinations, maybe closer to home. Do you think that's going to last? I think everybody, you know, as Wanderlust wants to travel. I think what we'll see is as more destinations open up further afield, so Thailand as an example, as of today, people can travel to Thailand, Peru coming off of the red list. As the world opens up, I definitely think what you'll see is more people wanting to get further afield and will want to get off the beaten track. A lot of what we do is based around giving back to local communities. So for us, it's really important to get people travelling around the world impacting in a positive way to all of these local communities who've been starved of tourism for the last 20 months. In terms of sort of how people are feeling about travel, are you getting the sense that some people are just keen to treat themselves and they finally get to travel, they want to do something really special? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because what we've seen over the course of the pandemic, when we've looked at all of the search results and what people are looking for, a lot of people are looking for bucket list type tours. So climbing Kilimanjaro or Base Camp Everest or a safari. These are sort of things that people may have had on a list of I'd like to do or get to do at some point. So we saw through the pandemic a huge increase in those searches, which has translated into bookings. People have realised that travel is special. It got taken away from them through the pandemic. People have been out and about, been more active as well through the lockdown because the only form of getting out and doing any exercise was the one hour or whatever it was that we were allowed to do at the time. So I think people definitely have got a desire to get travelling. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been fascinating to get all of your perspectives on just what it's been like running an adventure tour company during the pandemic and the way ahead. Thank you.
Well, let's bring in Sophie Lund-Yates to talk more about this. And Sophie, can we start with the flight paths of airline companies? Because they certainly have taken different routes and aren't in the same competitive position, are they, as we emerge from hopefully the worst of the crisis? Hi, Susanna. Yes. Um, I mean, a really interesting one for me is Wizz Air, not just because I love the name of the stock. That is not a reason to invest, should point that out front and centre. But the reason they're interesting is that they're focused on Eastern European routes, including their native Hungary. And because of that kind of area being slightly less popular, a bit more niche, as it were, it has a near monopoly on those routes, which is a really rare thing in the sector and has kind of obvious benefits really from a competitive position and it keeps its costs incredibly low as a carrier and one way it does that is by flying into smaller airports a bit further away from central hubs so think about that in terms of the equivalent of you might be flying into Luton instead of Heathrow that kind of airport when your unique selling point is being as cheap as possible customers shouldn't really tend to mind this and it also means it strengthens the competitive position because there's less competition for your slots at the airport that then feeds into the super low prices that it can charge and that means that there's more scope for what's known as ancillary revenue essentially that's just upselling things like when they charge you to swap your seats location or for extra baggage or if you buy food on the plane anything like that And the group actually made more money from those services than it did on ticket revenue last year, which is incredible when you think about it. I think it was about 413 million euros, so almost 27% higher than its ticket revenue last year. And also being a low-cost carrier should help it in the case of a rocky economic environment. As alternative European holiday spots gather popularity as well, when you look a bit further ahead to the longer term, Wizz Air should stand to benefit. And the really exciting stat... Uh, what I think is exciting, because I'm a bit of a nerd, is that it's expected to fly 90 to 100% of its capacity over the summer, which is just, you know, monumentally impressive. Uh, I mean, should point out the results are due in the next few days, so by the time this recording is out and about, we'll know if they hit that target. But I just think that's really exciting to see if they've pulled that off. And the final thing that I should mention, something that's really important to remember, with all airlines really, is that they're very cyclical. And by that, I mean its fortunes track the wider economy quite closely. So if the economy hits a rough patch, even better placed airlines will feel the crunch. Yeah, it could really hit disposable income if there's a downturn, so people won't certainly be splashing the cash so much on holidays. But let's talk about the difference between a company like Wizz Air and a long-haul carrier. Yes, absolutely. The obvious one to talk about here is British Airways owner IAG. So as an operation, it couldn't be much further removed than the likes of Wiz because it's much, much, much more exposed to long haul and business travel. So unsurprisingly, COVID is is still weighing massively on demand. So, you know, we've got Wiz saying they expect to have flown close to full capacity over the summer. IAG definitely haven't had that commentary. In the six months to June, it flew about a fifth of 2019 capacity um, and demand isn't expected to recover fully until 2023. Again, should point out we're expecting some results in the next few days, so there may be some kind of upgrade to that guidance, but I personally don't think that we're going to see a you know, massive bout of positivity coming out. The good news where IAG is concerned really is that immediate liquidity concerns have been put to rest. They've managed to take on a multitude of loans, they've deferred huge pension payments and shifted the costs of the big Air Europa merger further into the future. So they've actually got access to over 10 billion euros. There was a moment when things first kicked off when you're looking at it thinking, oh my goodness, this could be an actual 
crisis crunch point and that is absolutely no longer the case which is great. All the fat that's been trimmed means it will emerge from the crisis as a much smaller but potentially more efficient company and I should also add that it's in a really good place to capitalise on that shift as business travel resumes as Brian was talking about people are wanting to treat themselves as and when they can as well so that kind of longer haul destination I do see it coming back and it's got a leading brand and a really strong reputation it's just going to probably be a bumpy ride as that fully recovers. So still a lot of turbulence out there and of course it's not just airlines that have been affected by the fall in tourist numbers you've been looking at one interesting company with its fingers in lots of pies that is also exposed to changes in how we've been traveling. Any opportunity to talk about this business, as I'm a, I'm a fan of their products, is Disney. Obviously, it's not just airlines, as you're pointing out, that rely on tourism and people actually travelling. So Disney's profits, again, rather unsurprisingly, took an absolute hammering when it was forced to close its theme parks and shut down its cruises during the pandemic. If you think about the fixed costs that go into running a cruise liner and those enormous theme parks, you know, it's not surprising that we've seen what we've seen. But it's turning a corner with third quarter revenues, which are up a whopping 45%, which is very impressive. And they were ahead of analyst forecasts as well. And that marks a really strong recovery in those theme parks as gates have started to reopen. And therefore, you know, profits are trickling back as well, well, more than trickling back. But the really interesting one is Disney is not just about roller coasters and parades anymore. Its streaming business has been phenomenally successful and was buoyed by lockdowns. If you think, you know, we're all confined to our sofas, everyone under the sun, it seems, signed up to a Disney Plus subscription. Um, And Disney Plus now has a little over half the number of Netflix's subscribers. If you throw in ESPN and Hulu, and Disney has surpassed 80% of Netflix's current total, which is just crazy. This new adventure doesn't contribute much to profit yet, but it's a really exciting area to watch as it builds scale. As ever, it's not always a picture-perfect situation. And the one kind of bugbear where Disney's concerned really is its debt levels. As much as they're heading in the right direction, the $71 billion acquisition of 21st Century Fox a couple of years ago means the balance sheet is carrying a bit more debt than is ideal. Not looking at, you know, a fundamental crisis, but that is something to, to keep in mind. Thanks, Sophie. Let's pull focus back to the UK now, because, of course, Chancellor Rishi Sunak unveiled the budget at the end of October, and there are real worries that the level of tax facing the UK could drag on the really fragile recovery. So let's see what Steve Clayton, who's HL Select Fund Manager, makes of it all, and all the other announcements in the budget. He's been talking to our Head of Investment Research, Emma Wall. Hi, Steve. Hi, Emma. So yesterday, when we were recording this, was the budget. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, stood up and said a load of measures. And the market did very little at all, didn't it? Well, that's it. I mean, on the day itself, the market dropped by all of 0.1%. And even within the market, there wasn't an awful lot of reaction. Yes, some individual companies reacted. Uh, Pub companies took the news of duty cuts and business rate relief very well. But... Overall industries barely shifted. There was nothing moving by more than 2% up or down on the day. So from the stock market's perspective, it's almost as if Mr Sunak could have taken a duvet day. (laughs) I always think for budgets, actually, it's much more about individual consumers and individual households that really feel the impact other than the market itself. And that, as an investor, that's how you can digest and be impacted by the budget if there's a change to pension policy or there's a change to to tax rates. 
And in fact, the only budget that I've ever covered where I've seen a sizable move in the market is when we had pension freedoms, because, of course, that did very much affect people's access to investments and the way people were going to invest. And so the stock market reacted. But other than that, as you say, it's a bit of a damp squib often in terms of the stock market, isn't it? Well, it is. And perhaps, thankfully, there was absolutely nothing on pensions yesterday because we've had far too much tinkering on pension rules in recent years. That's not to say, however, there wasn't some interesting tidbits in yesterday's speech in terms of looking forward and what we can expect from the stock market over the next year. One of the things that was really interesting for me was the economic forecast. You know, we've had such a torrid couple of years in terms of UK economic growth. And actually, there was some good news there, wasn't there? Well, that's it. The Office of Budget Responsibility has revised up its expectations about how well the economy is going to recover from the deep recession that COVID brought with it. And as the OBR said, that extra economic growth is bringing in a lot of tax revenues. And this has created headroom for Rishi Sunak to actually start spending significantly more than people thought he would have had the capacity to. So far, he's spreading it broadly across government departments. They're all going to get an increase in real terms. But if the economy keeps moving as the OBR is progressing, then potentially he could be building up a little bit of a war chest for tax cuts as we get towards the end of this parliament. And he wouldn't be the first politician to set a budget with the idea of having some firepower as he heads towards an election. Good news for the economy then, and broadly some good news for households and for the public sector, as you say, in the budget. One of the things, however, that is potentially less good news is this spectre of inflation. All this spending and indeed everything that's happened in the last couple of years with difficulties with trade and energy prices is building up inflation. And that does affect markets, doesn't it? And it, and it does affect stock picking and fund picking and your job. Exactly. At the moment, what we're seeing is inflation being boosted by rising energy prices. Also, when the world sort of shut down in response to the pandemic, it interrupted production schedules and it interrupted the movement of ships around the oceans. And we've ended up in a situation where there are an awful lot of goods that were either not produced or have ended up in the wrong location compared to where they were expected to be at this time, which is leaving manufacturers around the world struggling to get hold of all the components they need to make finished goods. They're all scrambling to try and get hold of stuff and paying up whatever is necessary in order to keep their own production moving. And this is all feeding through into inflation and we are seeing price rises accelerating in nations around the world, not just at home. Whereas previously we were looking at an economy that was uh, flirting with deflation, now we're seeing inflation rising well above the sort of target levels that central banks have been operating with in recent years. In the UK, I think the OBR was forecasting sort of 4% plus inflation going forwards, and we've already got inflation over 5% in the US. And this does impact markets. Markets fret that if the inflation does not prove to be transitory, it seems likely that interest rates will have to respond and we're expecting actually the first move in uh, UK rates for some time to take place in the next few months.
And rates have already started to rise across the world. We, we've seen in Brazil in the last week that they've actually hiked rates in order to try and battle double-digit inflation. In New Zealand, they raised rates earlier this month for the first time in seven years and indeed forecasting sort of five or six rate rises in the next couple of years. As you say, the Bank of England governor here in the UK, Andrew Bailey, has signalled a potential rate rise, although the Monetary Policy Committee is, seems to be a bit more divided on that because only two of them voted for a rate rise last meeting. But let's say that does play out and Andrew Bailey is correct. What impact do rising rates have on equity prices? It depends how much they rise. At the moment, people are talking about maybe two or three interest rate increases by the end of the next 12 months or so. And given that rates tend to move by about a quarter of a percent at a time, that's going to leave interest rates still pretty close to 1%, which is very very low in historic terms. And I think if that's all that we get to see, then equity markets will will brush that off. Where we'll get to see significant market reactions will be if inflation continues to rise and looks to be gathering ahead of steam, because at that point, central banks could be forced to go a lot further than the sort of relatively token rate increases that we're talking about so far. And that's when companies will feel the pressure, when servicing debts could become harder to achieve. And and at that point, markets will be looking to differentiate between the the stronger players and the weaker, and, and stock selection will be absolutely vital. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Anna. Well, that was Steve Clayton, HL Select Fund Manager, with our Head of Investment Research, Emma Wall. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. Yes, this time to reflect our travel theme. I've been looking at some of the more unusual trips and tours you can book. And as ever, it's up to you, Sarah, to guess which ones are actually bookable and which ones I've invented. So, are you ready for this? <laughs> Is there a wrestling-themed cruise? <laughs> wrestling, that's fantastic. Oh, I know wrestling's massive in the US, so I suppose just why not stick it on a boat? It wouldn't be my first choice of holiday, but yeah, I'm going to say this one is real. And you are right. There is. Wrestler Chris Jericho took the rock and wrestling rager at sea. A triple whammy from Miami to the Bahamas at the end of October. And uh, this uh, tour came complete with wrestling shows, live music and even, rather oddly, a wrestling themed game of family fortune. So there we are. (laughs) There's one for your bucket list. What about a cruise for bikers? Uh, well, that's just that's just daft. Surely, surely bikers want to spend their holidays on their bikes, and this is the one place you can't take them. So, no, this is definitely not real. I'm afraid you're wrong. The High Seas Rally has just returned to Florida after a trip around the Bahamas. It was a wall-to-wall rock and roll deal, apparently. Parties in every port, and the chance for bikers to hang out with other bikers. A lot of it seems to be happening between Florida and the Bahamas. That's clearly the place to be at the moment. So, Sarah, how about a survival break on a desert island if you want to get away from all the bikers and wrestlers? <laughs> it's the survival bit that worries me here because it sounds like a really great way to turn a lovely holiday into really hard work. I'd like to think it doesn't exist. I'd like to think we can all just relax and chill out. So I'm, I'm going to say no. I'm afraid it does exist, Sarah. 
You get, though, you'll be pleased to hear, one night in a luxury hotel in Panama, but a couple of days learning how to do things like use a machete and weave palm leaves, and then you're cast away on a desert island for three days. I don't know about you, but I actually quite fancy that. <laughs> Just to really be removed from my current working from home situation, three days on a desert island, even if I do have to weave palm trees. But maybe that's just me. And finally, though, can you go on a wine tasting tour of Lanzarote without leaving your home? Well, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's a patch on actually leaving your home and going to Lanzarote for a tour. Uh, but it does, it does sound a lot like the things people started doing in lockdown. Yeah, you're right. It is a Zoom tour, a company set up after so much travel stopped in 2020. So the idea is you take a tour online and then they send you a selection of virtual wines to taste during the tour. So you don't get a holiday, but you do get something nice to drink. And I, I expect you probably have to change your Zoom background as well to some palm trees or something. Well, I think that although that one involves being essentially stuck at home, it, it actually sounds slightly more my kind of holiday than the others. I don't know. I think one of those cruises sound fun. Count me in for the wrestling tour. We do need to remind you that Emma and Steve recorded their interview on the 28th of October and the rest of this podcast was recorded on the 1st of November 2021 and all information was true at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. And as you've heard, tax rules can change and any benefits depend on individual circumstances. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Steve, Brian, Sophie, Emma and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.